I'm reading from the book of Judges, chapter 16. The book of Judges, chapter 16. And I'll read one verse in your hearing today. Verse 30. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. He bowed himself with all his might. The house fell upon the rulers, the lords, upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Stephanie Boulan is an author. She is a cancer survivor she wrote and I quote I am reminded myself that a beginning and an ending are two different places and in real life you might be able to make your own ending whatever has gone before. Today I am reminded that a beginning and an ending are two different places. Amen. In the name of Jesus we pray your blessing. And all the people said amen. Just put your Bibles down behind you for a moment. Would you just extend more praise to God? just for a few moments just for a few seconds I'll give you praise today Lord come on if you're at home just give God praise wherever you're at wherever you're standing or sitting we give you God all the praise we give you Lord all the praise we give you Savior all the praise Amen Amen God bless you you may be seated In respect to relationships, marriage, uh, marriages and homes, little compares to the joy of a newborn baby. The expectation of the expected is a constant focus in every instance. Dispensations of time have hosted the same stories of sons and daughters to come. The arrangements and preparations are all similar. God once promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Sarah's eventual blessing of Isaac was a long-awaited gift. There are others who desire to have children. Hannah once pleaded with God to give her a son. She prayed earnestly. 
She promised the Lord that if she was granted a child, she would give him back to the work of the temple. The Lord gave her Samuel and Hannah made good on her pledge. Rachel's life ambition was to have children, while her sister Leah had many sons and daughters. Rachel grieved without respite until God gave her Joseph and then also Benjamin. These are the more prominent historical figures in the scripture. Their stories are easily found in pulpits far and wide. They usher the hearer down the main aisle for relatable and redeemable views. But among the pages of the Bible comes an obscure man. He rarely graces the pages of modernistic religious affairs. His name is Manoah. Jewish history calls his wife's name Zelponai. They also yearn for a child. Manoah came from the small tribe of Dan. He even lives in a nondescript place. The day of his living features the oppressive hand of the Philistines and a mostly backslidden nation of Israel. The couple doesn't seem to garnish either the attention of anyone around them. Then again, there is no context to indicate why they were chosen in the first place to be in the Bible. There seems almost to be a randomness in the narrative as to why God would choose Manoah and Zelponai. Our best and most educated guess is that they would be honorable and they would be faithful to God's instruction in raising their son. The nation of Israel will waffle between obedience and debauchery. They will, they will bend and turn. They are a fickle people with less commitment and more waver. God was about to raise up another leader, yet another leader, another judge to lead the people and to deliver them. And we know through the Bible that it was God's intent that Manoah and his wife would have a son that would do just that. Again, it is likely that Manoah's commitment to adhere to the commandment of the Lord is probably lost on the greater Christian populace. Like many biblical principles and God directives, so many have skimmed the Bible for verses they agree with. Subjectivism often leaves obedience in short supply. Manoah and Zelponai did their best to raise their son according to the law of the Lord. They instituted a vow of purity in their home. They named their son Samson after the instruction of the angel of the Lord who first visited them. Of course, Samson will be far more famous than his God-fearing parents. They instituted the boundaries prescribed. No alcohol, no strong drink, no razor upon his head. Adherence to the Nazarite vow, the meat that he ate had to be clean according to the law of the priesthood. The washing of hands and ceremonial cleansing, all of it was there and more. Samson grew up in a dedicated house with dedicated parents. And choices were made for him until the time he would make his own. And when the day came for Samson to do what he would, the bottom fell out. This is perplexing to every godly, dedicated parent that ever lived. How can you raise a child in the fear of God only to have them abandon the very things that you were devoted to? How is it 
that a turn is made in life so adverse to the things of the Lord that you cannot even recognize your own child. Adults far and wide have been given truth and holiness in their childhood only to treat those things with contempt later in life. I've seen grown adults who are given all the blessings of prayer and worship, righteousness example before them only to reject it all. Some of them are now even hostile toward the things of the Lord, the church preaching spiritual authority. It's a heartbreak not soon forgotten in the hearts of their parents, a loss that cannot be explained or reasoned. The day came when they decided. See, when you decide is when you begin. The beginning is not when you are living under the protection of another's commitment. The beginning is when you decide your level of commitment and consecration. The first location, the first place is the beginning and everyone has one. Perhaps it's a person who never knew the Lord or someone who came to find him later only to leave their commitment later on. But I rise to say that the location of the beginning, whether good or bad, need not be the story of the ending. In fact, I preach today that the ending is not determined by the beginning. They are and may always be two different locations. How you begin does not have to be how you end. Mm -hmm. Samson is barely out of the box when we see trouble come his way. We're quickly brought from childhood to adulthood in a single verse. And in that introduction, there is an argument between dad and son. Dad, Manoah, says to son, Samson, why are you looking at these worldly women? Why do you want to have a relationship with a Philistine woman? It's perversion, son. Samson scoffs at his father's rebuke. He is no longer a child. He can make up his own mind. And Samson is shown already to be contemptuous. This was Samson's beginning. He began with a clear deviation from God's law. The scripture will call him out for all to see. He's rash and reckless. He's lustful. Nazarite vow or no. Can you imagine this? All that time living under the protection of the vow of his parents. And now he leaps across the boundaries of decency. Samson, his entire existence was built around an anointing, not of his making. His claim to fame, his place in Israel's history, all of it wrapped around a supernatural strength afforded to him by the hand of God for the benefit of the people of God. And yet, he can only think about himself. His indifference, however, does not give pause to God's unprecedented power. Samson feels the spirit of the Lord upon him to do exploits, and he does them. He kills a lion with his bare hands. He strikes down 30 men in a matter of moments, stripping them of their belongings and their clothes. He catches 300 foxes and pairs them together, lighting their tails ablaze to burn the Philistines' fields of grain. His anger results in a pseudo-victory for Israel as the enemy's vineyards and olive groves go up in flames. Nothing is ever really settled with Samson. Samson's strength is enough to carry the gates of the city on his back and then plop them down the middle of a field without regard. His anointing was given by God. He was anointed by God. For momentary acts of greatness, all the while besmirching the vow that allowed him that access. It hurts my brain to think that God would allow such a thing. 
In fact, it appears that the only thing left of that vow was his uncut hair. He has dismissed the greater commitment once afforded him and offered to him. Samson has developed a destructive disposition as he summarily deserts the holy things of the Lord God of Israel for whom he purports to serve. It's a travesty of immeasurable proportions. Samson, the judge of Israel, a disgrace, an embarrassing, disenchanted deliverer. He is a case study in the top ten ways to backslide and dishonor your parents in simultaneous motion. He lives on the edge of success and failure by taunting the enemy, toying with his undeserved and underappreciated God-given gift. There is no doubt. Samson's beginning was froth with impetuous living. Samson will end up with a wife who hates him. He's so blinded by lust that he will forfeit the very thing that brought him into prominence. He's so cold and indifferent to the purpose of the Lord that he will lay his lap, his head on the lap of evil. Lay his head down there. Know this, sin damages all reason and common sense. It plunders the rational mind of understanding, blurs, clouds the senses of impending danger, and then rearranges the, de de uh, the definitions of good and evil. And I preach this word with all conviction and knowledge of our time. Don't squander the moment that you have right now to change your life. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And I know where the Holy Ghost is leading us today. There is redemption in that wonderful and most merciful second location. But I urge you not to think that you will survive the choices of the first. Samson should have been put in a pit with the pagan. He should have been left to his own demise. There is no biblical reason that Samson should have been able to keep his gift. But for the sake of Israel. Most people would have smashed him like a bug under their foot. Most would have cast him aside. In fact, there are many who would have been dismissal. And have been for people that have done far less than what Samson did. But who can measure the grace of God? Who can compute the compassion of a Savior who would have all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath given him first? And it shall not be recompensed. For of him and through him and to him all things belong. To him be glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. It's the Spirit of the Lord speaking the truth. A beginning and an ending are two different locations, and well enough they are. The morning and the evening occupy two different places in time. The start and the finish reside in two different locations, and all the wonder and blessing of it all. For whatever the story has been in the past does not mean to be the story of the last. I'm preaching today. Whatever lost in the daytime can be covered in the evening time. And this is the axiom of God's love. All things can be recovered in the evening sacrifice. 
and I wish I had time to talk to you about the evening sacrifice and the power of reconciliation that comes in the evening sacrifice. There is a full recovery allowed by the Lord in the evening time. Just know this, all of it rests on the immeasurable grace of God that none of us can even fathom or compute in our mind. No other figure in biblical history and this biblical writ I hold in my hand speaks to God's recovery through grace better than that of Samson. His flagrant living has led him to exposure. He's so arrogant and full of pride. He must think that no harm could ever come his way. It wasn't for a lack of sleep or sickness that caused him to give up his secret. It wasn't for a lack of exhaustion that forced him to speak what should never have been spoken. It was his absence of the fear of the Lord. He believed that he was the reason for his blessing. Samson thought that a little shaking of the head would ignite the power. A little self-discovery, a little personal fortitude would bring it all back. The problem was, ladies and gentlemen, that he forgot the source. And in a moment, when he awoke, the story of his life came to be. The enemy is on a mission to destroy every soul, and especially those who have lived under the banner of truth. Such was the scene of Samson. They cut off his hair and stripped him of his freedom. They gouged out his eyes and then bound him with chains. They beat him as he assumed his natural, most common self and then they dragged him from his comfortable surroundings and ultimately tied his hands to a grinding stone and they mocked his very existence. They broke him down to toil with empty ambition. Samson became a sideshow for the amusement of his oppressors. So write him off if you must. Close the book by all accounts. Samson should be finished. The day is spent and the time has passed. I see him. I see them in every city, in every community. A thousand souls lay bare to the same lines of empty ambition. Oh, the mission of the church today has never been greater. The mission and purpose of your life has never been greater. Your mission and your purpose is not to make money. Your mission and your purpose is not to get a better job. Your mission and your purpose is not to gather things. Your mission and your purpose is not to get a new home or a new car or a better set of clothes. But the purpose is in the field. I say today to the church, if you fail in your mission, all you'll be is a relic. Ah, ah. One day, uh, after everybody thought it was over, even Israel left him. The Philistines forgot the means of his anointing, and they didn't keep his hair cut. And Samson then was brought before the congregate of the enemy. He's there as a display, a token, a reminder of their victory, their conquering of him. And in his blind state, he says to the servant who is leading him by the hand, and I quote, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. The Holy Spirit of promise is speaking today to everyone 
You see, a beginning and an ending are two different places. The beginning with all those poor choices and all that foolish living. The beginning that featured mistakes and deeds done and things said and self-inflicted wounds. The beginning does not indicate or dictate the ending. I don't care how gross the error might have been. I rise to tell you there is a recovery coming in the end. <laughs> Samson is led as a blind man. He looks weak. He looks debilitated. But God is about to do a work. Think of it now. The work has more to do with restoring a single life than it does with defeating the host of the Philistines. It's okay, I'm just excited by myself. Because I've read this book. God could have sent an angel to wipe out the whole host of the Philistine army. He's done it before. One angel destroyed 186,000 men. He could have sent any number of plagues. He's done that before. He can wipe out anybody. He could have caused the earth to swallow them whole. He's done that before. He, he could do anything he wanted to. God did not need Samson to destroy the Philistines. Samson needed the victory to be restored back to God. Oh, yes. And the Bible says that Samson pressed or pushed, leaned with all his might. And the house fell upon the rulers and upon all the people inside. So that the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his entire lifetime. His ending was greater than all of his prior days combined. And I suppose Judges 16.30 would have been enough. It would have been enough for us just to know that at least Samson did not die in vain. But this God-inspired, God-breathed book did not leave Samson buried in the house of the Philistines. Oh, no. God ushered this messed up, tangled up, stained up, mostly pompous, arrogant judge of Israel who finally repented at the end. He ushered him to the forefront of biblical history. And God made Samson a showcase of grace because that's what God does. I'll give you the word today. Hey, just to let the devil know that you and me are not over. Here's the word. Jeremiah 29. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. I say today, I want the enemy to know that your family, your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, your husbands, your wives, your neighbors, it is not over. The ending is going to be greater than the beginning. like I don't care what they sound like I don't care how lost you think they are I don't you I don't care if you think they'll never come back the ending the ending time there is gonna be a recovery And I say, God's grace is greater than your condemnation. God's grace is greater than your own thoughts. God has an expectation and a thought about.
you. And I can't help but say it. Of course, I am the middle child. So I'll talk like the middle child. I want to rub it in a little bit. (laughs) That's what middle children do. You know, the first child, they're like Lewis and Clark. They pave the way. They make all the overt mistakes. The second child learns how to get in trouble, but not be found out. (laughs) I want to rub it in a little bit for all who discount and dismiss the qualities of mercy and retort that Samson should have been disqualified. And who disqualify everybody else? God did not leave Samson buried. But God brought him out and God put him in the hall of faith. And the hall of faith is found in Hebrews chapter 11 with the likes of Abraham and Noah and Enoch and Moses and Joseph. Can you imagine these great men? So many more. I want to read to you where Samson found out, where God put Samson. And what more shall I say, Hebrews eleven thirty-two? for the time would not, would not fail me to tell you of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David and of Samuel and of the prophets. Samson is listening with the grace God would not let him stay buried with the Philistines because our God is a God of recovery and when he brings you out he doesn't just bring you out he puts you somewhere I rise to say God has an expectation for you you are not over you are not through your family is not over and they're not through there's a recovery in the evening sacrifice Oh, you ought to give God praise and you ought to give God thanks and you ought to be clapping your hands and thanking God the immeasurable grace of God. God put him with the greats. God put him with the greats. God put him with the great men and the great women. God put him there because the beginning and the ending are two different locations. And I say to every enemy of the truth and every demonic spirit, here's what I want to say to the enemy and every demonic spirit and every person that's used of the enemy. Rejoice not against me, oh my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. say it again rejoice not against me oh my enemy when I fall I shall arise when I sit in darkness the Lord shall be a light unto me I'd just like to look at the scripture for a moment. What did the writer say? When I fall, not if. When I sit in darkness, not if. He's not a pessimist. He's not predicting his own doom and failure. He's just recognizing the condition of the flesh. He's pointing out the realities of life. 
And Paul said as much when he wrote, for what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil is what I'm doing. I keep doing that. Here's a law, he said, Paul said, working in me, it's a war. Warring against the law of my mind, Romans 7, 23. I'm not predicting a fall. I just know that all those who get excited to see me struggle, don't rejoice too soon, honey. You just saw my beginning. You have not seen my ending. I'm struggling a little bit right now. You just got to wait till the Lord brings me out and sets me up. Hey, God's not done with you yet. He's not done with your family yet. He's not done with this world yet. He has an expectation. I know the thoughts I have. Oh, 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 oh. oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Come on to everybody who feels written off and left for dead. You're not over. You're not over. You're not through. Your story is not finished. Let me just say this. Your ministry is not over. You're going to be shocked who comes back to God and picks up a ministry for which you... Th- Know in your heart they're not qualified. Because sin has been so great in their life. But the book says where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. That means sin and grace were at the starting line and they were racing. And grace is always one step ahead. Ha ha ha. They're climbing a ladder, but grace is always one rung ahead. Where sin abounds, grace is a little bit better. It's a little bit stronger. It's a little bit more powerful. And the songwriter said it. There shall be light in the evening time. The path to glory you will surely find. I think it's a prophetic word. And to the church, our time to give praise is coming because people are going to come to God. We thought would never come to God. There will be a return. There is coming a renewal and a revival of sons and daughters of fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and friends and grandchildren and even your enemies. People you thought would never be saved. So I say to the body of Jesus Christ, do not write anybody off, no matter how they look or what they sound like. In fact, they can go from cursing to praising in a single day. God's anointing and his grace is enough to bring them out. I'm almost through. Just hold with me. Learn the lesson of Elijah when he said to King Ahab, get up. Read it. Get up. Get up. For there is a sound of abundance of rain. Don't let your sight limit the sound. 
You don't walk by sight anyway. Anyway, you walk by faith, not by sight. Don't let what you see limit the sound of the latter rain. For the latter rain shall be greater than the former rain. Now the former rain boasted of 3,000 people baptized in the Holy Ghost in a single day. And the former rain featured miracles by the dozens and giftings of the same. But the latter rain, the ending is a different location than the beginning. And the, e- and the evening shall be greater than the morning. So Joe said, be glad you children of Zion rejoice in the Lord. He gave you the former rain moderately. He caused it to come down just slightly. The former rain, however, and the latter rain is coming in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat. And the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. And watch this. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. We're not really excited about that. We're really excited about three verses later. It shall come to pass afterward. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. But if you can believe in the third verse later, three verses later, surely you can believe that God's going to give you the latter rain and he can restore years that the locusts have eaten. Just be seated for one moment. Thank you. And when you get down there, put your hands together and clap like it's the last time you ever got to, you ever get to clap. Please pardon me. I'll slip back into my birth order. (laughs) What did you want me to say? It's over. Do you want me to say, yeah, they're done. Yeah, they'll never get back to God. That's what you want. It's different when it's your family and it's your friends. What did you want me to say? Ignore the word of God because the Lord has already given us the word. He has a thought about people that you don't have. His thought is to bring them out and set them up. His thought is a latter day Holy Ghost fire pouring down and bringing everybody in. People you think would never come, they're going to come. You watch it, they're going to come. They're coming. They're coming. Get ready. They're coming. I'm just setting you up so that you don't play the part of fool by shaking your head and saying, I never thought you'd be back here. Don't you ever say that. You should say, God had an expectation and I was believing because we were praying for it. Ho, ho, ho. So before we decide, somebody has no recourse. Hear the Holy Spirit speaking today. The Spirit speaks through the blood of redemption. Don't ever underestimate the power of his redemptive blood. And for those of you who are hearing this and you think you're not worthy to be saved, your past will keep you out. I pray this seed finds root in your heart. How you end is not bound to how you begin. In fact, the place of your beginning, even the middle, rarely determines the final stretch of time. I want to say to you, you will be saved. You are coming back. Regardless of the scars and the stains, they're not too deep to keep you from a better ending. The evening sacrifice is pressing And if God could bring Samson out and set him up, I know God can do that for anybody because our God is in the redemption business. 
Think right now in your, in your mind, in your, in your thoughts. Think right now of people you would love to be saved, but you don't have any faith left for them. Think of that. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, but I pray for you that your faith fail not. (laughs) Even Peter thought he was over. But an intercessor, the mediator between God and man, stands as your personal prayer warrior. The person you thought of, they're not over. It's not done. The book isn't closed because God's thought is greater than your thought. And the expectation of God is for complete restoration and complete healing. Now, come on, church. Here we are today. Here we are. We're going to reach our hearts out with faith and we're going to thank God for the coming revival of the people that we thought would never make it.